It was a very cruel scene. Executed in an unusual manner. Hey, cruel coven. Hi, my precious little pancakes. <laughs> I had pancakes this morning. I brought Tori oatmeal cream pies. She fucking did. Okay, my name is Tori. My name is Katie. You're listening to Cruel and Unusual. The podcast. Here we are. We are here. Back in action. I back. was thinking that in my head. Were back you? Back in action. That's funny. Hmm. Back in the saddle again. Back in all the places. In the saddle or on the saddle? That's debatable, right? That is debatable. And now I'm no questioning one's ever, it. No one's ever questioned that till right till this very moment. Right. Why are you in a saddle? You're on a saddle. You're not in a fucking on saddle. On a horse. Right. Or an ass. Whatever it is. <laughs> que sera, sera, motherfuckers. That was just dramatic. So fucking dramatic. <laughs> that child's middle name should have been dramatic. <laughs> really quick, we would like to welcome Angela. Welcome, Angela. You've been here, but now you're really here. You're in the fucking thick of it. Angela is our newest Patreon. Hello, Angela. Fun fact, we Fun met fact. Angela. I met Angela. <laughs> While we were <laughs> in line to meet Billy Jensen. And you ditched me. I did. You were pregnant. I was. You were anxious. I was. You were nervous to meet Billy. So nervous. So you left. I, I <laughs> waited left. In, and you waited in the hallway. <laughs> anyway, Angela was uh, behind me and I decided to strike up a conversation because sometimes I do that. Usually I don't, but I did because I saw the artwork that she had made. Um, don't be an irony from the murder squad. It, just so you guys to know. To give to him. Yeah, they were waiting in line to do like their meet and greet with yeah. Billy. Mm-hmm. And so they had their things that they were going to give to yeah. him. And Katie had one of our books. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, then and she Angela. had this like fucking fantastic artwork. And I I think we both have a copy of it now. Yeah. A print I, of her artwork. I've ordered a couple of things from her mm-hmm. and I love every. She's so fucking talented. She really is. But yeah, so I was like, did you draw that? <laughs> like that looks like not real. Like, yeah. you know what I mean? It was so good. And she's like, yeah, I painted it. And so... Just nonchalant. I On a Tuesday. And I connected with her on Instagram after that. So, yes. Thank you, Angela, for being around and for not finding us extremely annoying. Or (laughs) extremely repulsive. Because a lot of people do. Um, But no, in all seriousness... I mean, I was serious about that. But also... (laughs) Thank you for your Pledge of Allegiance. We really appreciate it. All right. I've got a... QOTDW. And I don't know what it is. So you don't me. know what it is. This one's actually just from me because I um, thought it would be good. But the question is, what are the top five things that you would take with you during a zombie outbreak? Okay. Victoria. Where are we going? Like wherever you home? can go. Yeah. Like we're you fleeing. can't stay here. You, you don't go. have to go, but you can't stay right. here. Okay. Do we have to count like our babies? No. Okay. So no, just things, like items. items. Okay, because I was going to say not just, Nora, uh, just because go she ahead would slow and... me down. <laughs> I was going <laughs> to so say, I'm glad. I was going to say, just assume that she's got what she needs. <laughs> okay. Like, what what would you bring for survival? Um, okay, yeah. So if she has everything she needs, this is a very important question. It really is. And I feel like this should have came with some preparing. Well, you know, like you're going to have to go prepper? on the fly. I want to be a prepper. I think, I feel like if I could find some water. Or one of those life straws, I think. An antibiotic, if I could get it. 
Yeah. I feel like I need to fake. Is this illegal to fake an illness, illness to get an antibiotic just to have on hand? Yeah. Every, every, is like, that they, a, is they that go, legal? <laughs> they expire like every two years or something. Yeah. They probably don't really, but that's what they have on the bottles. Maybe. So yeah. every two years, we'll just need to go to the doctor and have another illness. I've got an earache. Yeah. Give me an anti. Yeah. <laughs> Give me an anti. <laughs> um, a weapon of some sort. I would like, I think like um, a big sword. Yeah, definitely a sword because you don't want to get in a long sword. Yeah. Not like a little thing because you don't want to get super close to the zombies or right. the people. A first aid kit. Yeah. I feel like I would need some sort of survival guide book. I'm not naturally inclined to build um to build a, a shelter out a of fire out of hay. I'm, I can't. Do you know do how it. to build a fire? No. out in the woods. Hell no. Me either. So we we would need to have some sort of handbook. I like how we're saying we because we just assume I would come straight here or you would come straight to me because we can't do it alone. You have to. <laughs> but we would have to find someone who knows what they're doing too. Yeah. Because I feel like even if we had a book, Katie. Oh my God. My husband doesn't know. I don't think your husband knows. He could probably hotwire a car. Yeah, he could probably do that if we needed to. Because we're going to have to keep stealing cars and shit. Mm -hmm. Unless we just want to stay around here. Right. And depending on where the hordes are in the beginning. Yeah. We'd have to leave and run. Right. And we're not running. It just depends. I can't run. I Are you kidding me? Please give me something with wheels. Run. (laughs) That's a dirty (laughs) word. (laughs) Um, Do you know... I still have, you know, when we went to Walmart <laughs> on March when we were Friday. Dooms- when we were doomsday prepping? Uh-huh. Friday, March 13th, 2020. When the pandemic hit. And Trump came on and made his yeah. speech. And yep. we were like, we're going to Walmart. Because also that was when Nora was like, what, three months old? Yeah. She was strictly on formula. She That's all she ate. I didn't have a stock built up. And they all was, people were like, yeah. grocery stores everywhere are out of everything. And there's no formula. There's no diapers. There's no produce. There's mm-hmm. no toilet paper. Toilet paper. There's nothing. So Katie yeah. and I were like, we have to go. Well, there wasn't that much on the shelves. Not really. There wasn't. There a lot totally of people. bare. Yes, there was people everywhere. There was a man walking down. I tell you this all the time. I remind you yes. because we had split up in the store. We had to split. And there was a man walking down one of the aisles yelling, I hope thousands of people die from this. Well, you got your wish, buddy. Yep. You did. So I was just kind of grabbing anything. So yeah. after <laughs> I did find some formula, I was like, I should just find like, I'm going to just get what I can get, you yeah. know? And I still have, like, fucking weird-ass garbanzo beans and, like, (laughs) other random fucking, like, bags of beans. No. That I bought. Beans. (laughs) Beans. That I was, like, I mean, honestly, if I was starving, I would eat them. It was pure panic buying. And we had no idea what was going to (sighs) happen. We didn't know. But crazy times at Ridgemont High. Yep. Do you have an article for me? I do have an article for you. My headline is a 22-year-old missing persons case was solved thanks to eagle-eyed neighbors and Google Earth. No shit. No shit. Everything that I'm about to say is a direct quote from the article. The disappearance of 40-year-old mortgage broker William Earl Moult remained a mystery for 22 years because the technology used to find him hadn't been developed yet. Moltz was reported missing on November 8th of 1997. He had left a nightclub around 11 p.m. where he had been drinking. He wasn't known as a heavy drinker and witnesses at the bar said he did not seem intoxicated when he left. 
After leaving the club, his car, a 94 Saturn, wound up in a retention pond at the Grand Isle Sausalito housing development in Wellington, Florida, which was under construction at the time. He'd never escape the pond alive. The houses that are now around the pond wouldn't be built for another year. The mystery of his disappearance wasn't solved until August 28th of 2019, when his body was discovered in an effort led by Barry Fay. It all began when Fay's neighbor's ex-husband was looking at his old neighborhood on Google Earth and saw what he thought was a car in the pond. He alerted his ex-wife, who texted Fay with screenshots. She said, tell me if you think that looks like a car, Fay said, according to the Palm Beach Post. His reply, yes, it does. Then he asked where the photos were taken. She said, silly, that's behind your house. I like that she said silly. <laughs> silly, 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 silly. When Faye got home, he looked into the pond behind his house, but didn't notice anything, just as he hadn't for the past 14 months that he had lived there. Wow. Faye called a neighbor who owns a drone with a camera attached, and the footage it returned showed clear as day there was a white car submerged in the pond. Wow. Who? Who? Faye called the Palm Beach Sheriff's Office immediately. They had my whole backyard roped off with crime scene tape, he said. When the car was removed by authorities, it was heavily calcified, and Moltz's skeletal remains were found inside. Oh, my God. Faye thought that the car they pulled out was just some junked-up old car, he said. Never did I believe there would be a 22-year-old dead body. Wow. Yikesos. Yes. That's yes. so wild to me. Crazy, right? After all of that time. All that time. Finally. And so many missing persons cases like that that are that old, you never, you they're not found. No. Ever. No. And all thanks to Google Earth and someone checking out their neighborhood, that's something I would do. Yes, it is. I wonder how we got in the pond. Yeah. Especially if he didn't appear intoxicated, wasn't drinking, wasn't a heavy drinker. Must have been foul play, and I don't mean waterfowl. Yikes. Okay. So you right. have an article for me. All right, mine is from shawlocal.com, the Times newspaper. It is by Shaw Local News Network. It doesn't have a writer's name. This is one that our local listeners already probably have heard about. The headline is, Police Mark 18 Years Since Killing of Streeter Boy Dalton Misarchik. Investigation remains open with a possible $50,000 reward for information. 18 years ago Friday, Dalton Masarchik stood outside his streeter home waiting for a ride to Bible study. It was the last time the seven-year-old was seen alive. The next day, a fisherman found Dalton's body fully clothed, floating down the Vermilion River near the Vermilion Boat Club. Police discovered the murder weapon, a benchtop pro three-pound hammer from Kmart, in a dumpster outside the PNA Hall in Streeter. State police issued a reminder Friday they haven't given up the investigation and that a $50,000 reward awaits anyone who can help solve the case. In a press release, the agency said the investigation remains a priority and is assigned to the ISP Division of Criminal Investigations. The DCI continues to work closely with the Streeter Police Department, Livingston County Sheriff's Office, Livingston County Coroner's Office, FBI, and the LaSalle and Livingston County State's Attorney's Offices in an effort to solve this case. With assistance from the above agencies, the unit continues to follow up on all existing and new leads, read the statement. 
To date, approximately 2,000 leads have been opened and investigated. Of these, many have led to additional follow-up assignments within and outside the state of Illinois. In addition, approximately 500 evidentiary exhibits have been seized in this investigation. No additional information will be released at this time. Anyone with information regarding this investigation or other crimes is encouraged to contact ISPDCI by email at isp.dci.zone05 at illinois.gov. Dalton's disappearance and death have attracted nationwide attention. Dalton's mother, Michelle, and sister, Deanna, appeared on the Steve Wilco Show in June 2016, and the case has also been highlighted on popular YouTube personality, Lord and Arts channel, with over 21,000 views. And that is the end of the article. But it and, is not the end of the story. Well, the reason I read that, it was because today, at the time you're hearing this, it will have been the previous week, but today, at the time of this recording, is the anniversary, the 18-year anniversary mm-hmm. of them finding Dalton's body in the river. And it's a case that I think about all the time. My husband grew up there a few streets down from where Dalton was taken and he was 13 at the time my husband was and and Dalton was seven and Dalton was seven and it just I never real I I have been seeing all these articles popping up mm-hmm. and like pictures of him because it's the anniversary and so I put on that Lord and Arts YouTube video my husband had never like really looked into this like he was very young yeah right. when it happened and he watched it with me and he was kind of like recovering all of this stuff and he was telling me just about like how things were because it's a small town very small i lived there with him for a long time so i know like where all of these Mm -hmm. key locations are and it's just so sad yeah but he was saying like yeah like he couldn't go outside like oh wow and then it was 2003 so cell phones were like barely um common right and they he's like he's like when my dad gave me his cell phone to carry around that's when i knew that things like it was serious yeah and it's still unsolved so oh i hate that i just hate that he has not been given the justice that he deserves Mm -hmm. he was a little seven-year-old baby yeah and you and i believe that it was someone who was very close to home i think so i mean it's such a small town and they're still there I think More so. More than likely. I think so. Guess you don't know for sure. I mean, but. yeah. I, I'm not an investigator and I don't have, obviously, the case files. and Right. I don't know what they know. I'm sure they know a lot more. And it could be one of those things where they pretty much know. Right. But you've got one chance. Right. To try somebody on it. And right. they, they don't want to get it wrong. It's just so sad to me. And it's just such... I remember when it happened because where we grew up isn't far from there either. Right. And it's just so scary. Mm-hmm. It really is. I don't is know, scary. man. I don't know. That one just, I think about it a lot. Yeah. So I'll be sharing, along with the episode stuff this week, a graphic from the Missing Persons Awareness Network of Illinois. They have a little graphic with the information about Dalton, like um, a missing poster. He's not missing, but it's yeah, sure, like that. Sure. So I'll be sharing that this week, too. So if you guys could share that, that would be great. 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 Okay. So shall we get into it? We shall. Okay. What are you telling me about? Because I have no idea. Okay, so spoiler alert. I'm going to be telling you about a story of survival. Oh, good. I feel like we've had a lot of heavy weeks in a row. We have. Also, we had a request from Hannah on Instagram 
to do a survival story, which we have a couple that we've been wanting to do. Mm -hmm. But then we were approached by Rebecca's house family. So we wanted to do that first. And then there were just some things that got in the way. But here we are. Here we are. And we are here with a survival story. Here we go. Debbie met Nino Puglisi when she was 21 and Nino was 24. They were all at some kind of gathering and Nino ended up going up to a friend of Debbie's named Bill Sharp. Nino asked Bill, jokingly, if there were any nice women that he could take home to his mother, which is strange. <laughs> I know. Flex, but, yeah. but, okay. <laughs> but he was basically like, hey, is anyone here like, you know free yeah (laughs) yeah. it's everyone spoken for and bill was like yeah actually my friend debbie she's an awesome woman and she's single and the rest was quite literally history debbie and nino started dating and they got married in 1973 their lives were like many other modern day american families for all of 25 years nino was a catholic and a brilliant musician the two of them had twins melissa and michael who are now grown and in college at this point michael was at the university of delaware and melissa was at east carolina university in north carolina debbie was an on-call nurse for a hospice company and she loved it and hospice is very close to my heart you know that worked Mm -hmm. with them for a very long time i think it really takes a special kind of person to be able to work in hospice yeah and make it out the other side Mm -hmm. because it is very draining very very draining i can only imagine i could never no it's so sad and the people who work for hospice are so strong and they take a lot on Mm -hmm. you know so debbie worked a shift where she was on call for 16 hours per Mm. shift And she would do that three nights in a row, and then she would be off. Um, She really felt comfortable around death and around the transition of life to death and helping families with that transition. So Debbie and Nino were coming up on their 25th wedding anniversary when everything changed. We're in April of 98, okay? Debbie wanted to go outside and plant some rose bushes. Seems just like a normal task, right? Mm -hmm. It was a nice spring day and Nino came home and he was actually surprised that Debbie was outside gardening because Debbie said that she is not exactly a gardener. Mm -hmm. Um, I feel you. Sometimes, though, you just get this like urge and like want. Like an inclination to just do it. I I do that, Mm -hmm. but I don't usually end up. They die. Yeah, me too. Um, so she doesn't really have a green thumb, but so Nino was surprised, but he was, he he was like, oh, that's really great. Awesome. Um, but he ends up going inside and Debbie calls to him and she's like, hey, Nino, can you please just give me a reminder, like call out to me when it's around four, because that's when she needs to call her on-call supervisor to find out where her assignment will be that night for her shift. Okay. So time passes. She's planting the rose bushes. She has an instinctive feeling that it's getting close to four o'clock. You know when you just have that feeling? Mm-hmm. Like sometimes you'll actually wake up out of a dead sleep. Yeah. Like because you you're, you just know. Yeah. You know? And she was waiting for the time to come. Yeah. So, yeah. It's like so you can feel it. she was just in tune to it. And she knows it's almost four. And she didn't think anything of it, like it being weird that Nino didn't call out. She was probably thinking, oh, it's close to four. So he hasn't said anything yet. Or he probably forgot. Yeah, exactly. So... She gets up, she goes inside, but right when she gets inside, before she can even realize who or what is happening, Debbie is attacked. Oh my God. In broad daylight. Yes. 
She felt a very hard blow to the side of her head, and she immediately fell to the floor. She didn't see who had hit her, but she heard someone demanding money from her. Her first thought was, where is my husband? Like, where is Nino at? Was she like, so she was like in the doorway? Yeah, like right coming in. Yep. Her first thought was, where is my husband? But then she immediately wanted him to stay away. She was like, I don't know where he's at, but I hope he stays out of here Mm -hmm. because I don't want him to get hurt. The attacker tied her wrist and her ankles and dragged her down a set of stairs, like down to the basement. In her own house? In her own house. Wow. He proceeded to throw her onto the concrete and she landed face down. So just so you guys know, from now on, there will be sporadic sexual assault. So trigger warning. The attacker then proceeded to rape Debbie from behind and dragged her again, this time out of the basement, and he covered her with a quilt. She was again wondering where Nino was. I'm wondering, where is Nino? Nino. (laughs) But then she felt the attacker like scooping her up into his arms with the quilt over her still. He carries her into the foyer so she can see, you know, like bits and pieces of what's going on. And... That's when she sees out of the window a car that was backed up to the front of their home. Oh. The attacker places a knife to her throat so she knows that she can't scream. Mm -hmm. He then puts her into his trunk and Debbie starts immediately planning how she can get free. She decides to do her best to loosen the ties that were binding her wrists and she starts working against the ties, like flexing her wrists and like back and forth as as he starts to drive. She thought when he opened the trunk next, she could kick, scream, run, do whatever she could do to make noise and alert people that she needed help. So really, she was thinking like, okay, so he's going to obviously take me back out again. And the minute that he opens up that trunk, I'm going to just go yeah what are your options exactly that's that's all you can do exactly but that didn't get to happen because even though debbie had her ties loosened she was ready she was set to as soon as he opened that trunk just flee he opened it and she realized that she was in a garage oh no there was no way out no one to help her no sign of anyone aside from herself and the attacker standing in front of her The attacker proceeds to take her out of the trunk. He brings her into a house. That's what she realizes. Like, he's obviously shut her into a garage, and now they're in a home. Mm -hmm. And he throws her onto a bed in a room, and he immediately realizes that she was messing with the ties. Oh, no. Mm -hmm. So he decides to punish her. He sodomizes her, rapes her vaginally, and Debbie pleads with her attacker for his mercy. But the more Debbie pleaded, the more it pleased him. He loved it. He got off on it. He laughed when she pleaded with him. Debbie said that he... Fucking scumbag. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Debbie said she's pretty sure that he was under the influence of some kind of drug during all of this. The attacker ends up binding her up again. Okay, so with ropes. He used rope to tie from her wrist down to her ankles. Does that make sense? Like, like so wrapped he, it around her? Yeah, like, like he he wrapped it around her wrist down to her ankles. Oh, so like hogtied. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. He put duct tape on her mouth with a wash rag there too. Oh, jeez. And then placed a blindfold over her eyes. <sighs> Debbie was then left alone in the room. At some point over the next few hours, she heard two gunshots. Mm. And the next day, the attacker actually came in and talked to her. He tells her how he thought that the police had caught him. He saw headlights shining in through the window, and he thought it was authorities. And he shot two times out the front window, and he thought better of it after the fact, and he was worried that the neighbors heard it or saw it. 
Well, yeah. Obviously. Out your <laughs> damn front window. Dummy. The attacker told Debbie all of this, and then he turned the radio on. And not long after that, Debbie heard reporters talking about how Anthony, Nino, her husband, had been shot and killed. Oh, no. She heard them talk about her and say that she was missing. and Can that, you imagine? Mm-hmm. She said that when she heard it, it didn't make sense. She had never thought of that even being possible. She never thought in her brain that he had hurt Nino and mm-hmm. then hurt her. She thought that it all happened very quickly. Like, he was just there. He took her, and Nino didn't even know any of it was happening. Okay. So she never, in her brain, thought anything was going on with her husband. Yeah. It was never even a thought to her. Wow. So to hear that on the radio was Mm -hmm. a shock. I bet. The attacker then went on to say, quote, I'm sorry, I had to kill your husband, end quote. What? And then he turned and left the room. So Debbie's alone again. God. She now knows that her husband is dead, and she knows that she's next. She also knows that she cannot cry because it would give this guy satisfaction. Mm-hmm. Like, clearly, he gets off on that. Yeah. He was laughing when she was pleading for her life. Mm-hmm. And I feel like up until that point, I feel like she might have had that hope, like, is he a killer or right. is he just going to torture me? Right. But mm, hearing it from his mouth that yep. he killed her own husband. God damn. That would make it just very real. Yeah. Even more real to you. Right. So not long after that, he came back in. He raped her again. And then he said, I should go to work. Oh. Yeah. Just nonchalant. Yeah, you should. So she can get the fuck out. Bye. (laughs) Every once in a while, he would leave saying he was going to work, but he would come right back into the room not long after. Is he like testing her? I think so. And it's at this point that Debbie started thinking about how badly she needed to get back to her kids. Mm-hmm. Um, her, so they're grown now, but that was kind of like what was getting through, like going through her brain. Right. You getting know. her. Yeah. Getting motivating her, her to. Yeah. To, yeah. So she thought of Michael and Melissa and how terribly they must be hurting with their father being murdered and then her being missing. She thought about how she had to make it home to them and it's all she could focus on. The next time the attacker came in, he untied her and spoke to her, this time like an actual person, Debbie said. And this was out of character for him because he hadn't untied her for long yet, Mm -hmm. um, aside from when he was raping her. And he never spoke much more than a sentence or two to her. Okay. He ended up saying that he was considering letting her leave, but he was worried because he was because she would be able to describe his house to authorities. Yeah. So immediately Debbie saw that like as her little way in. Right. Mm -hmm. So, okay, you're telling me that you're thinking about this. Let me figure out how to make this happen. How to milk that. Exactly. Keep him going in that direction. So she assured him, calling him sir, that she would never, ever, ever tell anyone about what happened or about his house or anything. Mm -hmm. She thought that by calling him sir, it would show him that she was at his mercy. She reminded her attacker that she had no idea what the area of his, like his, his subdivision, his wherever he lived could be in the middle of nowhere right could be with a neighbor on each side could be she had no idea she did not know what the exterior of his home looked like she only saw the garage right and then what little of the house that she's known you know that she's been able to see but she could never like pinpoint it if the cops drove her around you know she said something along the lines of sir i was blindfolded i was brought into a garage i have no idea where we are or what the outside of your house looks like she assured him she wouldn't try to go against him and she would be good she said but he said he just couldn't do it he couldn't let her go and debbie said she felt so discouraged by that like Mm -hmm. she felt like that instant spark of hope 
when he said that he had been thinking about letting her go. Yeah. And then it just all came crashing down, you know? Mm-hmm. The attacker said, quote, you'll be able to describe my flacked wallpaper in the dining room. Oh. You know, if I get rid of all the drugs in the house and the police find me, I won't get more than 10 years, end quote. Mm. And this is when Debbie was like, okay, this man is not very intelligent. Like, she, he clearly is going to get more than 10 years for murdering someone and kidnapping someone and then drugs on top of it. Yeah. <laughs> what? Okay. <laughs> She said she switched over to survival mode and realized that she could get herself out of the situation. Debbie was able to keep him talking and keep him listening, more importantly, to her. And her attacker started to really trust her and value her and see her as a human being. And this can be sometimes incredibly crucial in kidnapping cases because you want your attacker or your abductor, the person who can directly take your life away, Mm -hmm. you want that person to see you as a human and not something that's easily disposable. Yeah. Yep. That's why they say, talk about your kids. Talk about, you know, tell them your name. Right. Yeah. Talk about things that Anything that you can find to try and connect with this person Mm -hmm. or show him that you have reasons why you have to be alive. Yeah. That night, Debbie's attacker left her gag and blindfold off, but still tied her up. He had her sleep in bed with him. Ew. So she was forced to sleep next to Nino's murderer. On the third morning, he released her from her bindings. He told her that she needed to shower. Debbie said by that point she had urinated on herself. She had gone to the bathroom in these clothes. Like, Mm -hmm. she was disgustingly dirty. But at the same time, she was so weak from everything she had been through. And also being tied up in the same positions for hours. Yeah, and is he feeding her? No clue. There was no mention of him feeding her up until this point. Debbie decides to ask her attacker if it would be okay if she took a bath instead of a shower because she just could not see how she could stand up and stand Mm -hmm. in there. She was just way too weak. So the attacker agrees, but he stands there and watches her the entire time. She washes herself and the attacker asks if she was going to wash her hair. And she said there was no way she could. Her wrist and arms were so sore from being tied up. Mm Mm-hmm. And that was, like, not what she has, that was not a priority. She didn't care. No. Yeah, about her that hair. That was, no, she did not care. So he washes her hair. Ew. Go to hell. Debbie felt so just vile. Yeah. And wrong. And disgusted. <sighs> so she ends up getting out of the bathtub, and he makes her put on his clothes, and then he rapes her again. God. The next day, he gave her food, and they ate together. And that was the very first time of a mention of food came into okay. play. Uh, He had left for a little bit, and Debbie said something like, while you're out, you should get a paper. And he did get one, surprisingly. Hmm. And when he got back, they looked at the paper together, and he said, quote, I committed the perfect crime. They don't have any idea who I am or where you are. And he seemed proud of himself. Fucker. So day five of captivity, April 24th, it's a Friday. So the attacker tells Debbie that he's going to work. And Debbie said that she wanted to wait a little bit. She's like, okay, I'm going to do, today's the day. I'm going to do it. Debbie says that she wanted to wait a little bit before trying to make any kind of moves because he made a point that morning to say, okay, I'm leaving now. Mm. And then he left and she felt like he was testing her. So instead of like rushing to try and escape when he, when he said that, she decided to wait an hour before making a move. So she lays and she waits She's laying there for the better part of what feels like an hour to her. And then she hears a door open very slightly Mm. and then shuts. And she knew she passed the test. She knows right then and there that she needed to move. 
So she gets up somehow. She shuffles to the door. She's tied at this point because he's like not around. And she opens the door of the bedroom, worrying that he would just be standing right there looking back at her. But he's not. She gets out to the dining room table with her hands still behind her back, finds a phone on that table, and with her hands behind her back, dials 911 on the phone. Jeez, how? Okay, what's wrong, ma'am? This man kidnapped me, killed my husband. Okay, where, where are you now? I'm in his home. I have handcuffs on my hands and on my feet. Oh, Lord, have mercy. Oh, my God. I want my children. Okay, this guy you said kidnapped, where is he now? Come. Yes, where is the man now? He's at work, I think. But he might come back. You're there, you're there alone now? Yeah, but he might get here before you. Well, you just stand there on the way, man. Just stand the phone with me until he gets there. Oh. <laughs> okay, we stand oh. the pulling up outside now. So if you hear something, that'll be one of the officers. Yes, ma'am. We have Help Okay, man, just, just stay calm. Man. Just stay calm. Okay. He, know, he knows you're there. Doesn't that give you chills? Yeah. It's so scary to Holy me. Holy shit. Like, you can hear she, how terrified she is. Right. Right. The, oh, my God. It's just like her voice is like literally shaking. Mm-hmm. Because she's begging she's, them. Yes. She's so afraid. Yeah. Oh, my because God. Because she's been holding that in for five days. Yeah. And holding in her emotion about her husband. Because she's a goddamn warrior. Mm-hmm. Ab- one million percent. Wow. Oh, I, I have the chills again. Third mm-hmm. time. Third <laughs> right time. now. Mm-hmm. I don't know. You can't see them. But they're there. Okay. <laughs> So police were obviously able to trace the call, and they got there in less than six minutes. Wow. Debbie said that she found out about Nino being murdered on day two of being kidnapped, but she wouldn't allow herself to feel the emotion at that point. So when she was finally rescued, all of those emotions just came flooding in. Mm -hmm. She said she felt such grief over the death of her husband, but at the same time, she was so happy and so relieved that she was rescued and that she would be going home to her children. And it was just a very strange, odd mix of feelings. Yeah. So Debbie gets home, finally. She's surrounded by her family members that had rallied around Michael and Melissa while she was being held against her will. Family members had come in from multiple states to help Melissa plan Nino's funeral. Mm. So Debbie said that Michael and Melissa have counselors that have helped them get through everything that have ha- that has happened. The murder of their father, the kidnapping of their mother, all of mm-hmm. that unknown that was happening. She said that she's incredibly thankful that she was able to go to her husband's funeral. Because she thinks that it helped her really process what happened. Yeah. Her family had said that they were going to leave an open chair with a rose on it if they hadn't found her by the time. mm -hmm, Yeah. But they did find her because she survived. And she was there. And she said that it helped. But what helped even more was processing everything after the criminal trial. 
Debbie said that her therapist, because she started going to therapy quickly after everything happened, and I'll talk more about therapy in a minute, but she said that she probably wouldn't fully process Nino's murder until after the criminal trial. And Debbie said, like, looking back on it, that her therapist was extremely right about that. Mm Mm-hmm. She ended up going with her dad and her stepmom back to their house in Florida. And while she was there, the prosecutor informed her that her case would be would not be an open and shut case. And she was immediately upset because it seemed very standard to her. So did they catch him? Yeah, because Debbie was like, why wouldn't it be open and shut? Like the police found her tied up in his home. Yeah, he confessed And she couldn't wrap her mind around why it wouldn't be easy and just an open and shut case. Debbie said that her family didn't really want to talk about what happened, that she wanted to purge the pain Mm -hmm. and her family wanted to bury it. Yeah. Her sister Darlene was one of the only people who would talk with her about it. She said that they were out to lunch one day and she just started crying because she was actually able to talk with her family about it and not just a therapist or for a police report. It turns out that Debbie was actually in therapy prior to all of this because of her kids going off to college and just a lot of changes and her mother passing away. So she was familiar with therapy prior to this. She said that she did not use victim services after everything happened, although she wishes now that she would have because she thinks she would have really benefited from it. Mm -hmm. So Debbie stayed with her father and her stepmom while home renovations were happening over that summer after her kidnapping. She went home after the floors had been replaced and the remodel was done. So Debbie meets with the attorney about the upcoming trial and they have to have a trial because his, the guy, the attacker's lawyer is having him plead insanity. Oh, so that's, Mm -hmm. yeah. So that's why it wasn't an open and shut case. So she meets with her attorney and then Bill, do you remember Bill from the beginning? The guy who introduced her and Nino? Okay. Was it him? It wasn't Bill, was it? No. Okay, good. That would I be thought a there very was going to be sad a, ending. a big twist no. here. Okay. No, not a twist. He had actually called her to give her support because they were friends. Oh. Um, and he had said where he was working and they ended up um, catching up a little bit over the phone. And then after the meeting with the attorney, Debbie automatically just went to Bill. She knew where mm-hmm. he was working. She went to him. She was really upset. He took her to a restaurant and they sat in a cor- at a corner table and Bill just let her spill out everything that was on her mind and on her heart. And she said that he didn't judge her and she felt like he had given her a gift just by listening to her. Aww. Six months after Nino passed away, Bill and Debbie started to date. Okay. I kind of, I mm-hmm. kind of wonder. Yeah, it's cute. Well, at first I thought he was a perpetrator. Yeah. But, oh God. But no. then I thought that. Yeah. That's cute. Okay. <laughs> Debbie said that a lot of people thought it was way too early because she had been with her husband, you know, for 25 years and they felt like she was moving on too fast. It's not theirs to decide. No. And Debbie felt like it was right. She just felt. That's what matters. It was right. So Debbie's therapist asked for Bill to come into therapy with her. Oh. And he, she wanted him to learn about her behaviors and triggers and about how he could help her, mm-hmm. um, like, start to heal. The therapist said just by watching Debbie and Bill together, she just knew that this was right for Debbie. Mm -hmm. And she wanted Debbie to be happy and enjoy their relationship. And Bill made it a habit to go every few weeks to therapy with her. And it said that Bill was a very, very crucial part in Debbie's healing. Switching avenues. Donald Flagg. Donald Flagg. Yeah, yeah. Donald Flagg is the name. Donald Flagg. That is the name of the man who murdered Nino and kidnapped Debbie. And raped her, sodomized her, held her against her will, starved her. Let's hear about Donald Flagg. 
In April of 1999, a year later, the trial happened. Donald was pleading insanity, like I mentioned, so that meant that Debbie would have to testify. Mm. So, Debbie had been having cognitive behavioral therapy over the course of that year. She would make audio tapes detailing the ordeal that happened, talking about how she was affected, and then she would rate her feelings from one to five, one being very upset and five doing well. Debbie didn't want to do the homework, which was exactly what this was, but Mm -hmm. she did with the help of Bill. Another part of her therapy was to look at a photo of Donald Flagg Mm. and say his name. She referred to him as the asshole, she said. Me too. And it was hard to switch over to actually calling him Donald. All of these things were supposed to help her desensitize. Right. So when she had to stand up there in court, she wouldn't be overly emotional. And just by seeing that, seeing him sitting exactly. there. Yeah, that makes sense. Exactly. So when it came time to testify, it, it had worked. She didn't appear as some grieving widow. She didn't sit up there and cry. And that's thanks to all of the preparation that she did. But did that hurt the trial? Did that hurt? Yeah. Uh, I don't know if it necessarily hurt the trial because in the end, I can it's just not pi- like he gets off. Yeah. But I can just picture people being like, well, it doesn't seem like it affected her that right, much. Right. Exactly. She said the jury didn't feel as if she was grieving appropriately. Yeah. And I don't know if someone actually said that or if it was a vibe or what it was, but mm-hmm. that's what the consensus was. Um, switching lanes from that, she said that she essentially dared Donald to look at her by purposefully looking at him when she was mm. when she was testifying, and he just kept putting his head down when she would look at him. Coward. Mm-hmm. She said that overall, the defense went pretty easy on her. However, Brandon O'Neill, from the defense, kept referring to Donald as, quote, the bird with the broken wing, end quote. Um... And yeah, he just kept fucking saying it. And she was so sick of hearing that. Like, that was his excuse. No. So finally. There is no excuse. Right. So finally, after one of the times he said it, she left the courtroom because she knew she was going to get emotional. Wow. And then the next morning, the headlines were all about her stomping out of the courtroom. Oh, of course. Because God forbid a woman shows emotion. Of course. Of course. She said after that was the only time she was threatened and told she might not be able to come attend the rest of the trial. Mm. The prosecutor called her and said that she would have to go to the judge that next Monday and stand before the judge for his decision. And the judge, she did, and the judge did allow her to come back, but he had told her to refrain from showing too much emotion. So should should she show emotion or should she not? Right. Because you... Oh, it's got to be the right kind exactly. of emotion. You said she she didn't show enough, and then she showed too much. Yeah. So what what would you like her to do? Bullshit. So in the end, Donald Flagg was found guilty. Good. The jury recommended sentencing, saying that they thought he should have life in prison. Judge Norman A. Barron could actually have overruled this because the jury is only allowed to recommend. They weren't allowed the final say. Mm-hmm. But the judge ended up giving him eight consecutive life sentences and Good. 166 years. The first 10 years, the judge ordered him to be in solitary confinement every April 20th through 25th. Wow. Which, yeah, which were the five days that he held Debbie against wow. her will. I don't know if I've ever heard such I've a never creative heard of that. sentence before. Mm-hmm. I've never, ever heard of that. Whoa. Now, Debbie said at first she felt like the sentencing was unfair, and that's because she wanted him to die. She mm. wanted him to get the death penalty. Okay. At the time, Delaware still had the death penalty, but then obviously in 2000, I think it was 2009, 
that they did away with it, but I could be wrong. So don't correct me. Just let it slide. (laughs) Okay. But she says now she does feel at peace with Donald's sentence. It was just very emotional at the time. Mm -hmm. She said that she doesn't want it to have any power over her anymore. And she said, she said what the judge said about Donald was, quote, the only way he will ever leave prison is with his hands crossed on his chest in a pine box. Wow. End quote. She said well, it's I satisfying it to judges her. Have these, Me like, too. It's always so well articulated. Yes. Like that. Yes. I just love it. Yes. Okay. I do too. All right. Um, she said that that was incredibly satisfying to her, um, in, in all honesty, that he could never harm anyone again. He could never harm her mm-hmm. and he could never harm another woman again. Debbie said that she took the tragedy and became triumphant. Good. She said she decided she wanted to tell her story in her own words, but it was never a thought in her mind to write a book Mm -hmm. until Marjorie Preston approached her through her attorney. Prior to the trial even happening, Marjorie Preston, who was also a rape victim, and Debbie sat down in Debbie's attorney's office and talked about potentially writing a book about everything Debbie had went through. Ultimately, Debbie said she and Marjorie both cried together and healed together. And while Marjorie had still labeled herself as a victim when she met Debbie, and Debbie had already labeled herself as a survivor at that point, by the end of writing the book together, Debbie said that Marjorie was able to call herself a survivor too. I love that. Me too. The book is called Shattered, Reclaiming a Life Torn Apart by Violence, and it was published in 2003. Debbie said she's incredibly proud of the book. The book is actually a required um, reading assignment in some, at least it was, in some criminal justice victimology classes. Oh, Isn't that's that, cool. Yeah. Um, and she actually goes around lecturing students now. Well, I'm not sure about during COVID, but pre-COVID she was doing this. Um, answering questions that they have and giving talks about what she went through. She volunteers for victim services groups. In 2007, she was awarded the Special Courage Award from Victims of Crime. Debbie has even gone into the prison system. She said that she believes first offenders should be rehabilitated and that these offenders should hear her story. Mm -hmm. Um, She's very big into restorative justice. And there's a woman named Kim that she's friends with that founded Victims Voices Heard. And Kim actually met with Donald Flagg while Debbie was exploring restorative justice. Kim met with him and then Debbie and Kim ended up meeting up like for lunch a few days later. And Kim was very hesitant about Debbie going to meet with Donald. Mm -hmm. And she said she just didn't know if she should meet with him, that she felt very uh, uncomfortable during the entire meeting. And she just wanted to protect Debbie, you know. Kim ended up asking Debbie, what did you want? Like, what were you hoping to get out of this? What questions did you want to ask him? And one of the most important questions that Debbie wanted to know was if he had intended on killing her. Mm. I would always wonder that too, I think. Kim already knew the answer to that from her meeting with Donald, and the answer was, yeah, he did plan on killing her. Wow. Debbie feels like her life was spared and that she has a calling to reach out to victims via her book, her lectures, when she speaks to other victims, and she encourages other victims and survivors to go out and thrive. Debbie and Bill ended up getting married in July of 2000, and the 20th anniversary of the attack was April 2018. I want to end with a quote directly from Debbie. She said, quote, 
There is life after tragedy. It's important to deal with any pain that you're experiencing. Try not to hold it in because it's a wound then that never heals. If you don't believe in counseling, find some type of support person, whether it be clergy or a good friend. And it's so important. It's the main reason that I'm here to tell my survival story today. End quote. And that is Debbie's survival story. Wow. I will have all of uh, Rain's information in the show notes. Rain um, is the Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network. You guys know that we have talked about Rain multiple times. That's mm-hmm. R-A-I-N-N dot org. That is the website. And if you feel like you could benefit from that resource, you should go on there and check them out. They have a live chat button yeah. on their website, which I love. Um, and so that is there for you if you need it. And that is that. Wow. A happy ending, though, for Debbie. A happy all things ending. considered. Yes. A happy ending, despite all of the odds mm-hmm. that, she, that she had to come up against. Ah, and Debbie and Bill. After all that time. Yeah. Debbie and Bill Sharp. Gotta love Debbie and Bill. Gotta love a Deb and Bill. I love it when there's a survival story and they just they survive. end up doing incredible things after they yeah. survive. Debbie is so incredibly... Um, she's such an advocate now mm-hmm. for survivors and victims and everyone at all walks of their journey after things like that happen to them. Yeah. Good, good. We needed that little um, happy ending. We really did. This um, week. I feel like there's been so many heavy topics, which are also incredibly important to talk about. Mm-hmm. But I feel like sometimes we just need a week to breathe. Yeah. And know that sometimes good things do end up happening after tragedies should we do a reading watching and listening i feel like we should okay who's going first (laughs) (laughs) you go first i need a moment for my voice to recover okay tell me all the things i binge listened to your own backyard the podcast about Kristen smart yes you were telling me about this but just briefly i think i talked about it in the group a little bit too um i knew nothing about Kristen smart's disappearance or abduction or murder i knew absolutely nothing i always confused her with elizabeth smart that's who I thought you were talking about this no. whole time. No, Kristen Smart was a college freshman in San Luis Obispo, California, who um, was last seen after after like a frat party with this really creepy guy. And it's pretty much everybody knows he did it, but they can't prove it. He's not cooperating. It's been it was in 1996. Oh, I was going to ask when. So it's hosted by... Chris Lambert, and he's not an investigative journalist or anything. He should be because yeah. he's incredible at it. He's just, he's from the area and it always intrigued him. And he was like, in the first episode, he talks about how there's like really nothing out there. Like if you look at her Wikipedia page, it's just pretty bare. Sure. And a lot of the facts aren't right. There's just a lot of unknowns. So he did a lot of digging through the family and through the people that he knew already and connections that he already had there's Nora there she and is. the police and found out a lot of things a lot of things but it's really really yeah good. I really didn't I not until you started just saying it now and I was like Kristen mm-hmm. Smart doesn't sound right but I couldn't think of what it was supposed to be I was talking about Elizabeth Smart a few episodes yeah. ago too oh <laughs> but, um, okay uh he did such a good job like finding information and tracking people down yeah and like there was a 
Australian exchange student who may have like driven past her and her alleged abductor uh-huh. that night for five seconds saw them maybe he doesn't even know if if it was really them or not uh-huh. arguing fighting and he however many years later tracked this guy down in Australia yeah that's just crazy. to ask about this sighting did he go there uh, phone. It was phone oh. calls. Yeah. And it's still ongoing. Just a few weeks ago, they executed a search warrant. Oh, wow. At a house. So if you guys haven't heard that, I know it was really popular for a while. Yeah. And I think the last episode was actually this past November. Oh, okay. So really, really good. I really um recommend that one. Yeah. Awesome. If you're interested about knowing more. Yeah, I don't know anything about that. I listened to all eight hour plus long episodes, not eight hour plus long, but there's eight of them. Yeah. And they're like an hour or longer each in one day because I could not stop. It was that good. Um, I also started the Paper Ghosts podcast and that's hosted by M. William Phelps. He's written like a million true crime books and he's an investigative reporter. He's investigating on this podcast. He investigates the disappearances of Janice Pocket, Deborah Spickler, Lisa Joy White, Susan LaRosa, and Irene LaRosa. And they're all from the same town in Connecticut in the late like late 60s to early 70s. And this one is a web. Oh, okay. It's all connected, we think. I haven't finished it yet, mm-hmm. so I don't know what we think. Yeah. But And I also listened to, I have never listened to any of Jordan Harbinger's episodes of no. his podcast. Mm-hmm. He's got like 500. Yeah. Um, I'd never even heard of him, Same. but it was recommended, I think, during something else that I was listening to. I don't know. And they recommended this episode in particular, episode 465. It's how to protect yourself from psychopaths with Thomas Erickson, who is like... He's some sort of expert. <laughs> I'm sorry. Some kind. I feel like I should know, but I don't know. But that one's really, really good, you guys. If you, I think everybody needs this information. He and just, just so you know, just so they know. You, I sent it to Tori too. Yeah, I started listening to it, and I pulled it up on my thing to remind her that she listened to it because she was so into. I forgot the the eight parter. Um, Thomas Erickson is a behavioral expert, active lecturer, and best selling author. Oh, he has a book. Mm-hmm. Multiple books, actually, yeah. surrounded yeah. by idiots, surrounded by psychopaths. So yeah, that's, that's who he talked to. They talk about the books in the episode. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But it's very, very interesting. Yeah, I started listening to it when I was making dinner and then, yeah. you know. Well, and they happen. say, like, towards the beginning, like, when you think of psychopath, you think of, like, some guy chopping off limbs in his dirty basement and right. stuff. But it's, it can be a lot more subtle than that. And, and what is it? Psycho. I, this is a quote that we've heard a million times, but I just they talked about it and it resonated with me again. All psychopaths are narcissists, but not all narcissists are psychopaths. Yes, that's yeah. right. OK, mm-hmm. yeah. I just think and it's they, so int- intriguing. Yeah. My God, the whole thing is just And so towards the end, they go over love bombing and how psychopaths will love bomb you at the beginning of the relationship. Oh, yeah. And, and get you in their clutches. Yeah. And everyone. Yes. Go listen to that. It's mm-hmm. very useful information that we all need to know. Yeah, absolutely. What about you? What are you reading, watching, listening to? Well, I started listening to the Jor- Jordan show mm-hmm. after you sent it to me. I haven't got to finish it yet. Yeah. And I started listening to Amy Should Be 40, but I'm just very early on. What is that? That one is the series that's about, um, I'm going to really mess up her last name, in 89, a 10-year-old girl went missing after school in a Cleveland suburb. Is okay. kind of like what it yeah. centers around. It's the kidnapping and murder of Amy Mahaljevic. Okay. I think I've heard 
I've heard that before. Yeah. So in 2019, it had been 30 years since she had been killed. So Mm -hmm. that hence Amy should be 40. And it is a five-parter. Yeah. I'm really into these like long form. Yeah. True crime podcasts lately. Yeah. So I started listening to that. I haven't been listening or reading. I haven't been able to write anything lately. Mm-hmm. I've not been in the mood. Um, yeah. It's all been work. A lot, a lot, a lot of work. Yeah. Um, but yeah. So that's my listening. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's your listening. That's all right. Okay, everybody. If you would like, you can send us an email. You if can. If that's something that you feel inclined to do. Our email address is cruelandunusualthepod at gmail.com. Check out our Instagram at cruel and unusual the pod. I tweet. She tweets. At cruel. <laughs> at, at cruel unusual pod. Go to cruelincmedia.com Go for there. merch. Go there. Go for merch. Go there, there. for merch. <laughs> That's got our Patreon wall. It's got a link to our Patreon. Our sources. It's got our, yeah, show notes and source material. All that good stuff join our facebook group that is cruel and unusual colon the group notice we're not saying you can you can we're saying do it do it and like it do it do it to it and i think that's all we gotta get the fuck out of here i think so i'm about to pee again okay love you bye love you bye